Welcome to the Carecast. Welcome back to the Carecast, and this is part two featuring our special guests, Matt James and the author Catherine Mannix, discussing death and dying. For more from Matt and Catherine, you can also catch up on part one, available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on the Care Org YouTube channel as well. I guess the the emphasis on family and the importance of of death as a social uh, thing rather than just a medical thing. Um, something that we've seen a lot of in these kind of pandemic times, COVID times, is this whole question of advanced care planning and and sort of preparing, uh, thinking ahead, getting ready in good time where possible for for death and dying. I wonder if you could just explain what advanced care planning is and. Um, what does good advanced care planning look like? How do you start that conversation? Because you talk there about parents and children. And, you know, I mean, the closest I've got with my parents is just a conversation about the lawyers and they've given myself and my siblings the power of attorney or something like that. And even that was a little bit like, okay, you know, right. Um, and yeah, just, just advanced care planning. How important is this? Okay, so advanced care planning has had a lot of not terribly useful press during COVID, but it's it's an old concept that the public have only recently heard of. So advanced care planning is planning ahead for our care as life happens. And um, antenatal care is an, is an example of advanced care planning. You plan your care through your pregnancy and the type of birth that you want. So the parallel still stands. So it's about what matters, what matters most to me, and declaring it to people who'll be able to speak if we're not well enough to be able to speak. Now, you could do that in an informal way um, by saying, you know, I looked after a lady who used to manage a care home and uh, the the local undertaker would regularly come to take uh, residents who had died away and they then would attend the resident's funeral and she was um she was a a very devout catholic this lady um and eventually she died in in our care in uh in a hospice where i was working and i don't usually go to patients funerals but i went to her funeral and when i got there she'd had the catholic tradition of the, of having been brought into church the night before so she was already in her coffin at the front of church by the time we arrived and her coffin was crimson it was needle cord crimson with the pine trim around the edge and the brass handles and when the priest came out to say mass he was in red robes and he began mass by saying well some of you may be a little bit startled by what agnes has chosen to wear this morning <laughs> But it turns out that she'd said to this undertaker and she'd said to her priest, you put me in one of those plain pine coffins. Um, I'm going to come back and haunt you. So she'd done some planning about the end of her life. But what she'd done is the kind of planning that most people do, which is after they're dead. They plan the funeral. They might write a will or write a list of who gets the dinner service and who gets the china dogs or, or whatever. But actually, what we really need is to look after our future selves during our dying phase by having put some plans in place. So I may be a person whose respiratory disease is gradually 
getting worse and a time will come when I will struggle to breathe and I will need to have that sense of breathlessness palliated. But going to hospital and being put on a ventilator is not going to make me better. It might assist my breathing, but it won't change the course of my illness. So is that going to be helpful for me? Or is it going to take me into a place of lots of tubes and machines and bleeps and very few visitors, isolate me from the people who I love best and not stand me in any good stead? So that's a conversation that's an advanced care planning conversation. And how would I know that I was a person that a ventilator wouldn't help? Well, I'm a doctor, so I could probably make a pretty good guess. But my dad needs to go and talk to his GP if he has that kind of respiratory illness. So advanced care planning means going and getting some kind of um, future forecast from our medical advisors to say, well, given the sorts of illnesses that you've got, I think we would probably need to think about planning for how would we manage breathlessness for you? Um, and how will we manage the pain that you get in your arthritic joints for this person, particularly if you get to a phase where you don't get out of bed very much and your joints all set and then we need to move you and that gets sore. So we need a little plan for that in case that ever happens. So advanced care planning starts by thinking about who am I, what's important to me, and then how do I wrap the medical care around what matters to me most. So it's still about me. It's not about medicine, but there are medical aspects to it. I think the least understood component of advanced care planning is the conversation around cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR. And the public misunderstanding that a doctor declaring that a person won't benefit from CPR, so they have a do not attempt CPR order, a DNA CPR order, um, is in some way rationing or the doctor deciding that this person isn't worth saving. So let's talk a little bit about CPR just for a moment. If CPR worked every time, then it would probably be worth having a go almost every time, unless the person says, well, if I drop down dead, don't you stop jumping on my chest. I don't want that. But in fact, CPR works about one time in 10. And the public has no idea that survival rates are so low because on all our TV soaps, mm -hmm the survival rate is really, really high. And somebody's done a fantastic research study of um, medical soaps to rate them for survival from CPR. So American um, hospital soaps, are they're more likely to survive CPR than British soaps. Um, but even the British soaps have a, have a very high success rate. The most realistic is casualty, which has uh, between a 35 and 45% success rate. Um, but that's still a lot higher than a 10% success rate. So why doesn't it work? Well, CPR is first aid. CPR is first aid for somebody who's relatively well, they're up, they're about, and then suddenly something unexpected happens and their heart stops. Everything else was working and suddenly their heart stops and now everything else stops working because they're not getting the oxygen from their heart pumping that they need. So within minutes, their brain is becoming damaged. Within not many more minutes, their kidneys are starting to fail. So 
CPR is first aid that puts very, very hard pressure on the chest, on the breastbone, to squeeze the chest and keep blood circulating through the lungs, through the heart, and then out into the body to keep the oxygen going. And you keep doing that until you find somebody who can give the treatment that either restarts the heart, 10 people out of 100, or you realise that the heart is not going to restart, 90 people out of 100. But there's another circumstance in which people's hearts stop, and that's during that process of ordinary dying that we talked about before. And we talked about people being tired, becoming unconscious, and eventually their breathing stops. What a lot of us don't realise is that after the breathing has stopped and we realise the person has died, their heart is usually still beating. It's very faint. It's not very strong. It's not circulating very much blood. And over the next few minutes, because no oxygen will come to it from the lungs that aren't breathing, the heart will gradually slow down and stop as well. So that's the opposite of that other situation. The fit well person or the person who's not too bad, whose heart stops first and then the dominoes go down. And this situation of ordinary dying where the dominoes have been going down and now the heart stops last. CPR is not going to do anything here. Everything else has already stopped. So what I'm saying to you when I have a conversation with you about having a do not attempt CPR order is if you're found in a state of collapse at home during this serious illness that we both know you've had and somebody doesn't know any better and they dial 999 and the paramedics come thundering in, they won't know that you've got all of this medical history and that all of these things have been agreed. They will see a collapsed person and they will do what they do to collapsed people, which is CPR and into hospital, when actually what's happening here is ordinary peaceful dying that you've just finished doing. So this is a certificate to protect you from intrusion during your gentle dying. I'm protecting you from intrusion by CPR. But unless we can have that conversation in a way that talks about death being inevitable, people become upset and they feel that in some way we're stopping them from having a treatment that could be, like Matt was suggesting before, the cure for death. So it's it's a terrible misunderstanding and it's been now got hold of by the newspapers who are talking about um, an advanced care plan that says this person who's very elderly, um, whose bones now are very brittle, who wouldn't be able to withstand cardiopulmonary resuscitation because their ribs will all break. And all of us who've done CPR have felt ribs breaking. We won't do that because we'll break them without saving them. So let's Let's give them this protection certificate. Um, and uh, this other person who's got long-term heart failure, they might develop a really peculiar heart rhythm that could be shocked back into a normal rhythm. So if we're going to give them a don't do chest compression certificate, let's also put a note that says if the paramedics come in, they could see whether in fact a defibrillator would help, but don't do chest massage. Now that's really subtle. And what we've got is the newspaper saying, oh, well, you know, if you're over a certain age, they will give you this order and then the health, health people won't try to save you anymore. But there's a difference between 
not interfering and not assisting and helping. So when we come in and a person is in a state of collapse, semi-conscious, blood pressure really low, no, I'm not going to start CPR, but I am going to see whether they're comfortable, whether the right people are around the bed, whether there's a, an imam or a priest or a rabbi who should be here now that nobody's thought to send for in the, in the panic. We can't always save the life, but I think what we need to be campaigning for is saving deaths so that we can do that last bit with, with dignity and kindness. Join us for Care Sessions, a series of online events helping you to effectively engage with and stand up for the issues that matter to you. Join us in March for two live Q&A sessions. To find out more and to register, visit our website, care.org.uk forward slash events. Spread the word and see you soon. Be part of Care's growing online community. Join our Facebook page for fresh content, devotions and updates on our causes. Don't forget to join our regional groups to be closer to the matters that affect your part of the UK. Find us on Facebook at Care.org UK. Really helpful distinctions there, Catherine, because I think it highlights all the more fact we can do so much nowadays at our disposal but actually what should we be doing in relation to the person the patient before us that we we're supposed to be caring for really helpful one of the things that was crossing my mind when you were talking people might be thinking does this advanced planning does that need to be legally binding in some way do you have to kind of go through the rigmarole of a lawyer kind of agreeing certain things or, or um putting those things in place or can this be as i think what i'm picking up for what you'll say it can be something that is revisited fairly regularly in accordance to how views and how your wishes may change yes yeah, so that's a really great question so it's really helpful if the people who matter most to you, who are likely to be the people that doctors like me will consult if there's a decision to be made, know what matters to you. Now, in British law, and it's different around the world, but in British law, nobody else can make a medical decision for us, even if they've been married to us for 60 years, unless they have power of attorney. And the powers are worded slightly differently in England and Wales from in Scotland and the Act is quite new in Northern Ireland and hasn't been tested yet but there are powers of attorney in all of our provinces and you can find the um, the forms online and start to fill them in online and then download them so everybody can sign them and you can give power of attorney there are two sorts one is just about your finances you know so if somebody can go shopping for you and do your banking for you and they can start that from today um, but the other is for health and welfare where people are going to make decisions that you would normally make but you're at the moment not well enough to make that decision so that might be temporary because um you've got COVID, you're on a ventilator, uh, you're really, really sick. But when you're better and you get home again, because remember, people do get better and get home again, then the power of attorney lapses as soon as you are now competent to make decisions for yourself. And then it would come back in if you've got another illness or if you developed dementia or those sorts of things. So power of attorney is legally giving somebody else a right to speak on our behalf, but they only get the same rights that we have so we can't demand a treatment. We can only refuse a treatment. So uh, if you give your children power of attorney, 
uh, and you don't have to give it to just one person, you can give it to several people, um, then they need to know what you want and what you don't want. And we should never agree to be somebody's attorney until they've agreed to have the conversation with us about what, what their wishes are. So James has got some homework to do because he's become an attorney for somebody who hasn't had these conversations. And it's really, really important. Now, the conversation is not... Um, Mum, do you want CPR? Or mum, would you refuse a ventilator? The conversation is, what are the things that really matter to you? Because I'm going to be in a position where I'm asked to say whether you would want this or not. That's what we're being asked. Um, and I can't know that or remember that for every single possible throw of the dice for the next several decades of your life. But if I know what your values are, if I know what really matters to you, then when something happens to your health and a decision has to be made, I can get out my understanding of you and your values and your preferences and see which one of the options that the doctors are talking about best matches that. And that's then how we make decisions for people. Now, it's helpful if you've written them down. Uh, it's helpful if you write them down, if you sign them, date them and get somebody else to witness your signature, because sometimes the doctors disagree with the attorney and the whole thing ends up in the court of protection. So having other information like something written or you've made a video about your preferences that the judge can look at to see whether the doctor's concern that your attorney is misrepresenting you is right or whether actually, no, the doctors have got a bit over themselves here and your attorney knows you really well and is clearly saying the same sorts of things that you wrote down or you put in your videos. The other thing you can do that's legally binding is to make an advance decision to refuse treatment, ADRT. Um, and there are websites online that you can find help and support the NHS website, signposts, a variety of organisations that helps with this, Age UK. Uh, has one um, and that's a way of saying it doesn't really matter what the circumstances are I do not want you ever to do this do that do the other now it's really important that if ever means even if I die if you didn't do that you have to write that otherwise if it was in extremis it would be overruled so even if I might die as a result is the key phrase or words to that effect um, this is all under the provision of the Mental Capacity Act for England and Wales and the Mental Capacity Act for Scotland and I can't remember what the recent act in Northern Ireland was um, but the thing you have to be a little bit careful of in England and Wales is whichever one of those things you do most recently supersedes the other one so if you've appointed somebody to be your attorney and then you make an advanced decision to refuse treatment that supersedes your decision to appoint an attorney. So my recommendation to people is to do it the other way around. Make your advanced decisions to refuse treatment so that it's really clear what you don't want and under what circumstances. And then appoint your attorney and go through your ADRT document with them. So now that is the kind of written support for them being the decision maker on your behalf if you're not well enough to do it for yourself. We were invited to be um, attorneys for my parents, um, and I'm from a I'm from a non-medical family. So I said, "Oh well, okay, we can do that, but we have to have a family meeting." 
well, what for, says my dad, because isn't it, aren't we just signing something, which I think is what James's family has done. And I said, well, actually, no, we're not just signing something because you're asking us to take on something that is a huge responsibility. It's not a burden, but it's important. And it's important that we who might be on the brink of you dying and bereaved by that are not also fighting with each other during the decisions about your healthcare while you're dying. So we need to know what your preferences are and we need to know whether your preferences are the same or whether you're different from each other. And what was really interesting was one of my parents saying, oh, I think we think pretty much the same about everything. And the other one saying, well, I actually don't agree about this and that. So it was very, very important that we had that conversation. And we had the conversation, um, a couple of people on Skype and a few people in, in my parents' living room. And we're having the discussions and then bringing them in. And that's, oh, we're, we're talking about this now. What would you think about this? So trying to get some kind of purchase on what they would think and also how would we make our decisions. So we asked them to make it so that it would simply be that we would have to agree with each other for a decision to be made. Um, and that might take longer, but actually will bind us more. So we'd have to be really careful not to set up family disruption by setting up powers of attorney. That's, that's really helpful advice there, Catherine. Uh, uh, one thing that went through my mind was a colleague who was a retired GP once talked to me. Uh, we were talking about this and levels of burdensomeness and things for the patient. And he said in some instances how he would how he could best help, help a patient with, that, with, uh, with easing the level of burdensomeness was actually to remove family from the bedside or from those conversations because it was all getting rather kind of heated, understandably, but uh, tongue-in-cheek that uh, removing levels of burdensomeness was actually removing the family from the immediate setting to calm things down to then move forward with some of the planning and some of the negotiations that were taking place. I, I think that's so wise. I think the other <laughs> thing that came up for, for us as a family was originally um, I got a phone call from my dad saying, oh, so we're going to do these attorneys and your younger sister who lives down the road, she's going to do our, you know, money things because she can do our shopping and pop into the bank and you do this dying stuff all the time so you can be the health and welfare one I go whoa whoa <laughs> I'm the last person who should be your health and welfare attorney because I'm so used to processing these decisions even though it would be much more difficult if it's my parents I will get to a place where there's an apparent decision far faster than my non-medical siblings and wouldn't it be awful if they get dragged along with a decision that in their heart they feel is the wrong decision? Maybe the thing to do is make all of them the attorneys and me not one, and I can be the independent advisor. So, oh, oh he said, well, I'll have to go back and think about that again. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you need to think about what the, what the model is and, sure. and then discussions with the person for whom you are attorneys, but also amongst the attorneys about how will we agree when emotions will be running high because families do fall apart around deathbeds, don't they? They yeah. do fall apart around serious medical decisions. And if they were able to talk about that difficulty you know, at one step removed with a much lower emotional temperature beforehand. That's, it, again, it's that preparation like the midwives of when you get into that labour room, you're going to feel like pushing and I'm going to say, I don't want you to push, I want you to pant and you're going to hate me. 
but let's practice it now. Do the panting. Let me see what it looks like. It's that. It's that kind of cognitive rehearsal for what we're going to do when the chips are down, but we're not meeting it for the first time when it really, really matters that we've thought it all through over a few dummy rooms first. And then you talked before, Matt, about just getting it out and thinking about it every now and again. I think maybe we should start thinking about these things when we get to a relatively neutral birthday, maybe our 50th birthday. Oh. Well, um, and- sharing just photos, I've often thought, actually just looking back over old photos, reminiscing but laughing at real family times. Well, actually... Yeah actually this is going to come to an end at some point but given all the happy memories we've got how would you like to see things end? yeah i think that's a great way of having the conversation and then dusting it down maybe every birthday with a zero in it or every birthday divisible by five i think when you get to the duke of edinburgh's age you know it should be an annual event and i think you know we've got a 99 year old man who's in hospital for the third time in six months here um the writing is on the wall and I hope that he's been able to have those conversations and that he's able to have the choices that he would like. What matters most to him is able to happen. Sign up to inform. This is your insight into the work of Care for Scotland. Keep up to date on the issues that are important and hear updates on our work and get a Christian perspective on matters of the Scottish Parliament. Find out more now at care.org.uk. Sign up to inform today. It's one of these um, topics that we could go on and on. Um, and I just want to, I just want to say thank you to you, Catherine, for your time and your wisdom um, and everything that you've shared. And uh, just so that people, if they want to go and buy with the end in mind, where can they, where can they buy a copy of the book? Well, they can buy it in all bookshops. Uh, they can buy it online from um, independent bookshops at the bookstore or at Hive Books. You can use um, mega stores online. I believe they are also available. Um, but I'm a, I'm a great advocate of finding a way to support an independent bookstore. And in fact, if you've got a local independent bookshop, ring them up. Ask them to order it. They'll do it. It doesn't cost any more if they order it, and they'll even post it out to you. Is it available as an e-book at the moment? It is available as an oh, e-book, okay. yeah. Um, and it's available as an audio book as well. Great. Fantastic. Brilliant. Well, with the end in mind, <clears throat> Matt, you would certainly recommend it to our watchers and listeners? Definitely. Catherine's been saying about engaging local independents. Ask them to get a number of copies in and book clubs all the age. Now read it together and start that conversation. What a great idea. I should have you as an agent, Matt. (laughs) You've done some brilliant publicity in the last sort of half hour. That's fantastic. It it is a really good book. Highly recommended if you haven't already cottoned on. (laughs) Yes, yes. With the end in mind, so available uh, hopefully soon in independent bookstores near you. If you phone them up, ask them to order it and then get your copy. Catherine, Matt, thank you so much uh, for your time. And as I said earlier on, uh, we'll put a link just below this as well. Uh, if you click on that link just below this video, if you're watching on YouTube, you'll be taken straight to a relevant bookstore where you'll be able to purchase your own copy of With the End in Mind. Start your own book club and begin those important conversations. Uh, Matt, Catherine, again, thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you, you very, very much. You've been listening to The Carecast. Remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes and find out more about the work of care on care.org.uk. Care. 
for what you believe.